This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder... Never underestimate determination. On April 7th, 1947, a monster of a man was born, and it would take sheer determination and an unwavering investigation to finally put an end to his reign of terror. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Herbert Richard Ballmeister, or Herb, as he was better known, was born on April 7th, 1947 in Indianapolis, Indiana, into what was described as a normal family. But from a young age, Herb showed signs that something evil may be brewing inside of him. Those who knew him when he was a child said he had a habit of playing with dead animals and on one occasion urinated in his teacher's desk. In his late teens, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and multiple personality disorder, which seemed to explain his antisocial behavior and gave everyone a sigh of relief that there was a reason for his actions, yet chose not to treat his illness in any way. His behaviors only got worse, and his obsession with death only grew. Despite his struggles, Herb managed to graduate high school with good enough grades to get into Indiana University, but was only able to complete one semester before dropping out. In 1967, his father forced him to return to a university, but yet again only made it one semester before dropping out for good. From there, he worked a series of jobs and was almost always described by his superiors and co-workers as a bizarre man with a good work ethic, which is how he was able to continually earn employment. In 1971, he married Juliana Julie Sater, a high school teacher and part-time student at Indiana University. And together, they had three children. Though she would later state that during their 25 years of marriage, they were only sexually intimate six times. Julie was committed to her marriage and stood next to him through some incredibly dark, bizarre behaviors and waited for him when, after just six months of marriage, Herb was committed to a mental institution by his father. When he was released, his father, who was a well-respected doctor, tried to help his son gain some meaningful employment despite his lack of degree. He got a job as a copy boy at the Indianapolis Star, where he committed to the job 100%, yet after a short while was deemed overbearing and irritating by his co-workers. He needed constant praise, and when he didn't get it, became bitter and eventually fed up enough to quit entirely and begin a job at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. More of the same issues arose at this job, and in 1985, Herb was fired for urinating on a letter that was addressed to the governor of Indiana. And Herb's problems didn't stop with his workplace. He was arrested several times after being fired, once for a hit and run while drunk, and another for stealing a friend's car, both of which he managed to never serve any time for. He stayed home taking care of the kids while Julie, always the dutiful wife, 
kept the family financially afloat with her teacher's salary. He was a good dad, patient and understanding, quite the opposite of how he seemed to treat adults. Eventually, he found a job at a thrift store, was able to open up his own store with the help of a loan from his mother, which he and Julie named Save-A-Lot. The store was a massive success, so much so that they were able to open a second location after just a year in business and give an annual donation of $50,000 to children's charities. It seemed they became an overnight success, and Herb finally got the gratification and power he had been looking for for so long. Soon, they had enough money to purchase an 11,000-square-foot Tudor-style home sat on 18 acres of land in Westfield, Indiana, that they called Fox Hollow Farms. Things were going perfectly. At least, that's what it seemed like. In reality, Herb, who was still living with his untreated mental illness, was an incredibly difficult boss, leading many to quit their job at the store, treated Julie as an employee instead of a co-owner, and was careless and neglectful not just with his business, but with his marriage as well. So much so that, by the summer of 1991, Julie and the kids were living with her mother, leaving Herb in the lavish home all on his own. While Herb's life seemed to be falling apart, he was pouring all of his energy not into his job or his marriage, but into the pool house at Fox Hollow Farm. He made sure it always had a fully stocked bar and liked to dress up mannequins and place them inside to give the illusion that he was throwing some lavish parties, though the home was so secluded that no one really saw his little charade. With Julie and the kids away, The Bachelor took this absence as an opportunity to start frequenting gay bars in downtown Indianapolis, something he may have been doing for years completely undetected, though there is no way of truly knowing. Around the same time that Herb began making his presence known at these bars, gay men began disappearing from downtown Indianapolis. In 1994, a private investigator and former Marion County Sheriff named Virgil Vandegrift was contacted by a woman asking for his help in solving her son's disappearance. 28-year-old Alan Broussard had been missing since June of 1994. And days later, the mother of Roger Goodlett contacted Virgil with an eerily similar story. Both men were last seen leaving a gay bar in downtown Indianapolis and were reported missing within a month of one another. Virgil began working the cases and started visiting the bars that the men were patrons of to put up posters in hopes of bringing closure to the grieving mothers. Soon, he found out that Roger and Alan weren't the only men missing from this community. In fact, the number of missing men was in the double digits, and no one really seemed to have a lot of information on their whereabouts. Virgil, it seemed, had happened upon an active serial killer. He went to the police with his findings, but was shrugged off due to the victim's lifestyle. Indianapolis in the 90s wasn't the most accepting location, and many believed these men had simply run off and deserved whatever may have happened to them. Around the same time Virgil began working the case, 13-year-old Eric Baumeister, Herb's son, was playing in the woods of their property and stumbled upon a human skull. He ran to his mother with his find, who understandably freaked out. She asked Eric to take her to where he found the skull, and upon further investigation, found that they were not the only bones buried on the property. She went to Herb to question what she and their son had found, and he told her that the skeleton likely came from his late father, a doctor who must have buried an old anatomical model skeleton. She took her husband at his word. Meanwhile, Virgil continued his investigation and spoke with a friend of Roger's who gave him an interesting tidbit of information. 
According to the friend, while hanging out at the bar he frequented, he ran into a man named Brian Smart. The two spent the evening chatting and, having hit it off, agreed to go to Brian's employer's home to continue their evening. Brian drove the pair to a large, Tudor-style home just north of Indianapolis, where he was led to the pool house of the opulent home. At this point, the friend noted how strange the room felt and said the mannequins posed inside made him feel uncomfortable. So much so that when Brian offered him a drink, he turned it down. Brian then asked if he had ever engaged in erotic asphyxiation and if he wanted to try it out. Not wanting to anger the stranger, the friend agreed and was instructed to choke Brian with a hose while he masturbated. It all seemed harmless enough until Brian demanded that they switch positions. As the hose got tighter and tighter and panic set in, the man started to realize that Brian was likely about to kill him. He pretended to pass out, and when the hose loosened, much to Brian's shock, the man opened his eyes. This man was able to escape with his life, but as Virgil was now realizing, maybe he was one of the very lucky few. He was convinced that this Brian Smart was the one responsible for the missing men, and with the help of Roger's friend, tried to track him down. Finally, in August of 1995, the friend had a chance run-in with Brian Smart at one of the bars downtown. He immediately ran outside to find the car that drove him to Brian's macabre pool house and wrote down the license plate to deliver it to Virgil, who, when he ran the plate, found that it did not belong to a Brian Smart, but instead to Herb Baumeister. A few months later, detectives descended upon Fox Hollow Farm and asked Herb if they could search his property. He, of course, denied the request. So they went to Julie in hopes that their marriage was just rocky enough that she would agree to the search. She told them no, and when she asked her husband why they were asking, he said he had nothing to do with whatever they were accusing him of. She yet again took him for his word. As they worked to get a search warrant with the very little evidence they had, months passed with little to no progress. That was until Julie Baumeister walked into the station in June of 1996. She told detectives that her husband was having a nervous breakdown, their business was being run into the ground, that she had filed for divorce, and, all the while, that image of the skeleton Eric found nagged at the back of her head. She granted them permission to search her home, and while Herb was away, they once again arrived at the massive farm. It didn't take long to find exactly what they suspected, and as they took a closer look at the gravel that lay next to the grass of their backyard, investigators realized in shock that it wasn't gravel that they had been walking on top of. No, it was the charred and crushed up bones of the many victims of Herb Baumeister. In total, 5,000 bone shards were found, belonging to 11 sets of remains, eight of which were identified. They were 34-year-old Roger Goodlett, 26-year-old Stephen Hale, 20-year-old Roger Hamilton, 31-year-old Manuel Resendez, 46-year-old Mike Kiern, 20-year-old Johnny Bayer, 28-year-old Alan Broussard, and 31-year-old Jeff Jones. A warrant was signed for Herb's arrest, but once he realized the home was being searched, he fled his mother's home and crossed over the border to Canada. No one would know where Herb disappeared to until July 3rd, 1996, when a group of hikers found his body in the Paneri Provincial Park in Ontario with a single self-inflicted bullet wound to the head. At the scene was a suicide note that cited his failing business, impending bankruptcy, and divorce for his suicide. Never once did it mention the 11 or so young men who he killed over the years. 
but his death didn't end the investigation. It was later discovered that between 1980 and 1990, the bodies of nine young gay men were found dead along the Interstate 70 between Indianapolis and Columbus, Ohio, killed by a monster they were calling the I-70 Strangler. They each seemed to fit Herb's M.O., and a witness came forward in 1998 that said the photo of Herb matched who they saw one of the Strangler's victims, Michael Riley, leaving an Indianapolis club with, but with Herb's death, it is unlikely that they will be able to conclusively connect Herb to the I-70 murders. So, was Herb simply responsible for the murder of 11 victims found on his property, or was he also the I-70 Strangler who took an additional nine human lives? Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on April 8th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? What are some things standing in the way of being the best version of you? For a lot of people, life, your past, and sometimes your current situation can cause roadblocks in your life. Mental health is incredibly important, and so many, including myself, can benefit from talking to a professional and working to dismantle those roadblocks. That's why I'm excited to talk to you guys about BetterHelp. BetterHelp knows no two people are the same and will help to assess your personal needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. These incredibly convenient appointments are in a safe and completely private online environment, and you can start chatting with your new therapist in under 24 hours. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling. You can message with your counselor at any time and get a timely response, plus schedule weekly video or phone sessions, which means no driving to an office, no waiting rooms, and no awkward small talk. Just meaningful sessions with experts who specialize in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma, family conflict, LGBTQ matters, grief, and so much more. There is truly someone there for everyone. And BetterHelp is committed to finding your perfect match, which means if you and your counselor don't mesh for whatever reason, they make it easy and free to seek someone new if needed. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and with financial aid available and access worldwide, they truly make it easy for anyone to seek the help they need. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash morning cup. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. 